Well, it's a blessing to be here, and uh, I'm, I'm really honored to have the privilege. I love coming down and sharing with the body, uh, especially uh, when I have an opportunity to be able to serve in an environment like this, where uh, I get to tell people about the Lord, and uh, a subject like this can be a difficult one, right? It can be one, I think, that is met with some struggle because of the world that we live in, and the hardship that we face on a regular basis. So with that, let's go to 1 Thessalonians. We're going to be in chapter 5. We're going to stay there. I'm going to take a little bit of a different avenue with this, so I hope that we'll be, we'll be blessed with it. Let's pray and ask the Lord to go before us as we jump into his word this morning. Father in heaven, we just thank you, Lord, for your word and I thank you for the privilege and the honor to be able to teach it, Lord. Thank you for the joy that comes, Lord, from knowing you and walking with you. Lord, I pray that the words that I share would be your words, Lord, and not mine. And that, Father, you would be glorified in and through everything that is said, Lord. It's our desire to want to uh, be like you, to walk with you, to serve you more and more every day of our lives, Lord. It's our desire, Lord, to uh, continue, Lord, to be individuals whose hearts and minds are turned towards you. And so, Lord, go before us now as we get into your word. I pray, God, that the words that I share would be your words and not mine, and that, again, we would walk away from here closer to you than when we came in. So, Lord, we love you. Thank you. We ask these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and... Um, I think it goes without saying that we lived in a pre or we live in a pretty messed up world, right? I don't have to get into the description of how bad things are. I think that there's a lot of time here uh, that has been spent uh, talking about the condition of our world. Uh, you know, you, you know that things are going bad when the type of craziness that happens today happens, okay? What are some signs of perilous times? I'll give you a great example. This one, I don't know if it's funny or if it's one to cry about, but I heard a story recently of a guy who decided that he was going to break into a house. Actually, not a house. He was going to break into a shop, and he was going to steal some stuff out of the shop. And so as he does that, his idea, his brilliant idea, is to take a saw to go on the roof in the middle of the night and to cut a hole in the roof. And as he goes to cut the hole in the roof, he doesn't completely finish cutting the hole, and he falls through the roof before the hole gets finished. And so what he does is, of course, in the morning they discover him, you know, and they take him to jail. And so he ends up filing a lawsuit against the building owner, right? Ready for this? Follow this. For not maintaining his roof, thus causing his injury. And he won the lawsuit. He actually won the lawsuit, believe it or not. How ridiculous is this world? <laughs> How ridiculous is this world? How ridiculous is this world when we have mainstream politicians that encourage a movement to basically destroy Israel as Hitler did during World War II. I don't have to get into all the description of what's happening in Washington right now and the crazy politics that are taking place. I certainly don't have to get into the description of the way our laws are changing, of the way our world is. Guys, listen, it 
go on and on and on and on. I can go on and on and on and on telling you about how messed up this world is and how blind we are and how the earth is just falling apart and all the other craziness that's happening. When I say the earth, I mean the people within the earth, right? I mean, we live in a really, really, really hard time. However, let me just say this. None of us as Christians should be bothered by it. Not a single one of us. Yes, we get bothered by the fact that bad things are going on. Yes, we get bothered by the evil that happens, and we should take a stand when we see those things. We should actually stand for righteousness. There is no doubt in my mind that those are the types of things that we should be doing on a regular basis every day. We should take a stand for the things of righteousness. We should be men and women of God who choose to be people, literally, who will stand on that front edge that, that you know, Christians should be where the fire is, right? That's where we should be. But for us, none of this stuff should move us. Why should it not move us? Well, let me tell you a little bit of a story. And I'm not going to get into all the details because every time I do, I get myself into trouble and I go way longer than I'm supposed to go. And I don't want to go way longer than I'm supposed to go today. But let's just talk about God's track record for just a second. Shall we just talk about God's track record? Let's talk about the story of the nation of Israel. You guys know about the story of the nation of Israel, right? God says, listen, I want to choose a people that will represent me. And so he chooses a people that will represent him. Now, of course, you remember the story that that people group, uh, through the story of Jacob and Esau. You remember the story of Jacob and Esau? Everybody remember that story? Okay, well, Jacob, his name in, in Hebrew is Ya'ob. When we say Ya'ob in Hebrew, it basically means heel catcher. Why does he have the name Ya'ob? Well, it's really simple because because when his older brother came out, they were twins. In Hebrew, they said, Esau. Now, why did they say that? Well, because he looks hairy. And that's how you say hairy in Hebrew. And when people from the Middle East named their children, they named their children based on a characteristic that they observe in there, based on a prophetic word, something like that. And so that's kind of how they got their names. And that's literally how many of the people got their names. And can you imagine? There are reasons why people were named the way that they were. And it's sort of uh, unique to think about it. Now we don't do that. Now someone's born, hey, yeah, I'll call him Jesus. See, that's a good name, you know, or whatever. We name people just without purpose. There's no purpose in the way we name people. To, you know, back then, they they were named with a purpose. So Esau comes out, the, he comes out, he's a hairy looking guy. So, okay, we'll call him Harry. And then his little brother comes out holding on to his heel. Oh, that kid likes to take shortcuts. We'll call him Yaob. What does Yaob mean? Yaob is a, is a hustler, a city slicker. By the way, that happens to be my name. <laughs> my name, you say my name in Arabic, it's Yaob Samuel Adis. So, and, and uh, that's, that's me, and I think my parents named me correctly because I think I have a little bit of a respectable hustle. At least I've got you hustled in the thinking of a theology expert and all the other things that my bro just told you. So it kind of worked out pretty well. So Jacob and Esau are born, and of course, you know the story of Jacob. You know the, the guy was an absolute, he, he proved to be the hustler that he was, and through him, we know the birth of a nation takes place. And of course, even before that, you go back all the way to Abraham, and we could tell you the story about Abraham and all the things that happened there, and all the things that God said he would do, and he kept his promise in doing so. Remember when he promised Abraham that somebody would come from his seed? And of course, we know that that happened, even though it seemed impossible, even though his wife laughed, even his wife said there's no way that that's going to be the case it did take place and then you go into the picture of Jacob and you see the whole story of Jacob and you see all the things that God 
concerning the future of his children. Even if you go to Genesis chapter 49 and you read all the declarations that Jacob makes concerning his children. Of course, you know at that point, uh, by that time, his name was changed to Israel. You know, he has a little wrestling match with God. And after that wrestling match with God, God says, you're no longer the city slicker, the conniver, the heel catcher. Your name will now be Israel, which means what? You are governed by God. Right? And so, of course, that's the story, and, and we know what ends up happening with Israel. If you go back and you read Genesis 49, you can read the story of the, of the cursings and the blessings that Jacob gives, or Israel gives, to his children. And it is very, very interesting to read all of what he says, and all of those things inspired by the Lord, of course, they absolutely come true. Now, as you know, they end up in slavery course raises up a, a man who was very very special to lead them out of the place of slavery they're finally led out of the place of slavery and it's just a wonderful thing as God does his miraculous work and he tells these people he says listen I'm gonna govern you I'm gonna rule you I will be your king I'm your God I will be the person who rules you and Israel of course is uh, very pleased with that for a while until they become big until they begin to grow and pretty soon they say well we want to be like everybody else so they go to Samuel you remember Samuel very interesting guy right there they go to Samuel and they say hey listen we want to be like everybody else. He says no you don't they say yes we do we want a king Samuel says you don't want a king believe me you don't want to have a king Yes, we do. No, you don't. Yes, we do. No, you don't. Well, if you get a king, you're going to pay taxes. If you get a king, he's going to take your children away. If you get a king, all of this stuff is going to happen. It's sufficient that the Lord is your king. We want one anyway. So they get Saul. That's a great one, isn't it? Everyone, by the way, who says that Saul is the first king of Israel is wrong. The Lord was the first king of Israel. He may have been the first human king of Israel, but he was not the first king of Israel. Now you go back and you consider everything that happened since that time. You go forward and you move forward and you look at the story of what happens. And you hit the fast forward button and Israel is a nation. They are a great nation. They are ruled by King David at this point. They're going through the most prosperous time they've ever gone through. Solomon comes into the picture. They go through the most prosperous time they've ever gone through. When Solomon ends up dying, something very interesting happens. If you remember, Solomon has a son by the name of Rehoboam. You remember Rehoboam? And Rehoboam rules in his stead. And as he rules in his stead, he's sitting on, uh, on, on cloud nine. He's ruling the whole kingdom. And some of the people come to him him from the north and they say hey listen we need some help this is rough your dad was really hard on us and and you need to just kind of ease up on us a little bit I mean come on life has been hard please you know we'll, we'll, we'll we really are begging you to ease up and of course Rehoboam doesn't really know what to do so he goes to some of his advisors the older advisors the wise ones by the way the ones that advise the wisest king ever to live say listen what you need to do is ease up with these people. If you ease up with them, they'll be loyal to you. They'll serve you forever. Everything will be okay. Just go with the flow and ease up. The youngsters, of course, the youngsters say, no way! You need to show them that you're the man! Put your foot down! So, Rehoboam says, that's a pretty good idea. So he goes to the representative, of course, Jeroboam, the guy who's representing the, the, fo the folks from the north, and he ends up saying this. He ends up saying, you know what? If you look at all the meanness that was in my dad's waist, of course, I'm paraphrasing it, right? I've got more of it for you in my little pinky. So it's going to get way harder. And thus, a massive split takes place. Of course, as you know, that means 10 nations to the north. There's 
nations to the south. Don't have to go over which of the nations are. Suffice it to say that the northern kingdom was then from that point on was referred to as Israel. The southern kingdom, of course, was referred to as Judah. Of course, as you know, uh, the interesting thing that happened with the northern kingdom was you had 20-some-odd kings. Not a single one of them served God. Every single one of them were wicked kings. Every single one of them. And as a result, they were taken into, into captivity much earlier. There were prophets who spoke on behalf of the Lord to them. Listen, repent, 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 repent. And they wouldn't listen. God sent some of the greatest prophets out there. As a matter of fact, there are stories of how these kings hated these prophets and tried to kill these prophets and attack these prophets. Perhaps one of my favorite stories of that is the story of, of the prophet Elijah. Remember that story? He's kind of hanging out in his house and he's you know, uh, sort of resting. And let me just tell you what happens just before that time. What happens is, is the king, the opposing king says, what is going on? We keep getting defeated everywhere we go. So he pulls his guys aside and he goes, there's a rata somewhere over here. Who is it? Who's the snitch? I want to know. And one of the guys comes to him as close as his advisor. He goes, bro, there's no rat over here, bro. Let me just tell you what's going on. See, this prophet that's over here, he knows the word of the Lord. God speaks to him. And the words that you say to your wife when you're in bed with her, he knows because God is telling him. It has nothing to do with anybody that's being a, a traitor to you. So he says, okay, let's go kill him. Let's go get him. So he sends his army. They send the army over there and... Uh, and the army goes over there, and then the assistant of the prophet comes out, and freaks out. he sees the army coming, you know, and he's, oh my gosh, this is crazy, we're going to die, oh my God, we're going to die. And he runs back into the house of the prophet, and he goes, no, we're going to die. And the prophet turns around, and goes, kid, what, what? Lord, show him what I see, okay, just show him what I see. Kind of goes back to bed. He walks outside the door after being told to go outside the door, and he sees the armies of the Lord. Now, mind you, if the angels of the Lord are surrounding the house, understand how powerful an angel is, right? One angel destroyed the lives of 185,000 elite Assyrian soldiers. So God spoke through these men. God sent these prophets and spoke to these prophets, and they didn't want to listen to the prophets. Finally, you get to the point where the northern kingdom is taken away. Assyria comes and takes them. They're actually taken completely out. They're exiled. They're finished. The southern kingdom is still in play, and God brings all kinds of prophets to speak to the southern kingdom. As a matter of fact, one of my favorite prophets that I can remember who speaks to the southern kingdom is the prophet Jeremiah. And Jeremiah stands in front of the temple in Jerusalem in front of the gates. And as God starts his ministry in that city, he goes and he tells them by starting off, he says, hey, look, you wear the fancy clothes. You say, praise the Lord. You're dressed up in your Sunday blues. Everything is great. <clears throat> but your heart with God is not right. You need to repent. You need to repent. You need to repent. And he kept sending the message to the southern kingdom. You need to repent. And there were lots of things they were not repenting of. Perhaps one of the greatest offenses that they had committed was every seventh year. Remember, remember the Sabbath? You remember the story of the Sabbath? For six days they were to work and the seventh day they were to do nothing. I mean, can you imagine having one day where you do nothing? That kind of sounds nice to me. My favorite hobby of all of my hobbies, and I've got lots of cool hobbies, my favorite hobby is sleep. It really is. And so you got one day to do that according to the word. But here, this is what even gets better. Did you know that you had to work the land for six years? This was the law. And on the seventh year, you did nothing. 
The seventh year, you took a vacation. And you know how cool that was? Let me tell you how good God was. He took care of them. Because what happened was, on the sixth year, they had enough crop, guys, ready for this, for three years. What do you mean for three years? Well, for the year, the sixth year, right? They had enough crop for the seventh year, the vacation that they would be on. And they also had enough crop for the eighth year when they planted the crop for the, for the next year. How amazing is that? God was good. Well, the Jews did exactly what I would do and they said, let's get paid. There, got their hustle on, sold everything and kept working the land every single time. They did it for four. God sends Jeremiah down. He says, you have been ripping me off for 490 years. You guys owe me 70 years. I'm going to send Nebuchadnezzar in. He's going to destroy you. He's going to mash you from the north. You're done. And you are going to be taken away from the land for 70 years. And then you're going to be restored. They didn't listen. They didn't listen. They didn't listen. They didn't listen. They did not listen. Jeremiah kept saying, repent, repent, repent. He kept telling them to repent. They didn't. There were three sieges. Even God used the first two sieges to warn them. The first siege, of course, that takes place by Nebuchadnezzar takes place in 605 BC. They should have got the message then, right? When that siege took place in 605, that was a siege that Daniel got taken away in, right? Then the next siege takes place sometime around 595. They should have got their point then. That was the siege that Ezekiel was taken in. And of course, Ezekiel being much younger than Jeremiah ministers the same message of Jeremiah to the people that were in exile that were there in Babylon. So Ezekiel saying the same message, Jeremiah saying the same message. Finally they get to that last point where Jeremiah is going and going and going and going and going and going. Repent, repent, repent. They don't listen. On the 9th of Og, 586 BC, guess what happens? Nebuchadnezzar comes in and he destroys the city of Jerusalem after them being sieged for many years. And if you don't know what a siege is, a siege basically is what we would call a blockade today. They surrounded the city, they starved out the city of food, they starved out the city of everything, and it was nothing but destruction for Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, if you don't believe me, Jeremiah was so affected by the destruction of Jerusalem, we go into the book of Lamentations, and what is Lamentations? That is him lamenting over the destruction of Jerusalem, where easily over a half million men, women, and children were killed on that very day. And he cried. The cry was, O Yerushalayim, Yerushalayim, Yerushalayim. That's how we say Jerusalem, by the way, in Hebrew. For those of you that don't know, just a little quick Hebrew lesson or Greek lesson for that matter, it's different. Languages are different. We say things different ways in different languages, right? And in the Hebrew language, we do not have a J sound. There is no J in the Hebrew language. We say Ya. So instead of saying Joshua, we would say Yeshua. Instead of Jerusalem, we would say Yerushalayim, right? And in Hebrew, there's lots of words that are very different. They sound different to us um, that don't know it. Uh, for example, we run around using uh, this term a lot. I won't give you the term. I'll tell you how we say it in, in Hebrew, right? In Hebrew, we, say, we use this term, Chapernechum. Most of you would not recognize that word when I told it to you, but what it is is Capernaum. Right? Sounds very different. So language is a little bit different. Interesting language lesson there. That's all we got. That's We're not going to go too much into that. It's kind of nerd stuff. We could talk about that offline. But the point is this. God said it, and it happened. Seventy years later, Daniel, who had already been taken into captivity, is looking at all of this. He's recognizing what's happened. He says in Daniel chapter 9 that he starts reading the words of the prophecies of Jeremiah and he realizes, oh my goodness, it's been 70 years. What are we going to do? It's been 70 years. So he goes to the Lord. 
He's praying, he's fasting. God, I repent. Our nation did this. We, he, this is a man who the last time he was in Jerusalem was over 70 years ago. He, this is a man who's completely broken. And he says, the 70 years is up, God. I know that you're going to restore us back. What is it that we need to do? What needs to take place? I know that our time is up. We, uh, it's not long before we end up going back. What is it that we have to do? What? Just help. Give me direction. And he prays and God immediately answers him and he gives him this amazing word amongst the word he gives us a lot he gives them lots of things he gives them what is we, what we call the 70 weeks of daniel 70th of those 60 of those 70 weeks has not happened yet that last week has not happened it's going to happen it's literally as a matter of fact the the last half of that 70th week is what we call the great tribulation and that has not happened yet it's about to happen it's around the corner but it hasn't happened yet but he talks about these weeks being determined upon their people and he makes a very interesting phrase in that prophecy. He says, from the declaration to restore and rebuild. There's going to be 69 weeks. Now, interesting, I don't want to get into all the crazy math and tell you uh, how that works and so on and so forth. But I'm going to hit the fast forward button to the very moment where Jesus walks into, or doesn't walk, he rides into the city. Remember when he rides into the city on a donkey and they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. And then remember, the Pharisees go to Jesus and they say, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus not only condemns them, he says, listen, if they don't say anything, the very rocks are going to cry out, are going to cry out. And what else does he say? It's an interesting phrase. It's a subtle phrase that people don't think about. They don't really uh, spend a lot of time looking at. He said, you should have known this day. Paraphrasing it. What does he mean you should have known this day? Let's go back to Daniel chapter 9 with the 70th week. That is 69 weeks that I'm telling you. 69 weeks. Every single day in a week represents a year. And we could spend forever talking about this. If you want to learn about it, you can go online and listen to my study through Daniel chapter 9 in my series, my end time series. But you go back and for every single day in that week, you have a year. You have one year. So 69 weeks times that, uh, uh, times all of those days. I think it's 473 days. Okay. In each and every, each day is a year. And in each and every single one of those years is not 365 days. It's 360 days because we're talking about the Babylonian calendar. And if you multiply that, that's 178,880 days. If you take from the very day that the, the declaration was was made to restore and rebuild Jerusalem or restore and rebuild the city. That happened on the very day that Artaxerxes Longimanus did this. He did this on March 14, 445 BC. You can read about that in Nehemiah chapter 2. And from that very day, you count out all of those days, it takes you right into the exact day, the exact day on 33 AD when Jesus Christ comes into the city. You should have known it. God said it. It happened. All throughout the scriptures, God said it would happen. God said he would restore the nation of Israel. Has he not done that? You go back to a passage like Amos, where God says he would bring them back to their land, never to be pulled again. What do you think has happened now? That land was nothing but a filthy swamp that nobody ever wanted anything to do with until God brought the Jews back in there. Now they're the number one producers, number one, number one exporters of a majority of the fruit you eat in this world. Don't tell me for a second God's word is not true. God has not been wrong about anything. 
He hasn't been wrong about a single thing. I remember doing Pastor's Perspective when I started doing Pastor's Perspective with Don five, six years ago. One of the funny things that Don did, he took it upon himself to tell everybody that Pastor James is here today and he is the expert on the Middle East. Now, he says I'm the expert on the Middle East. Why? Because my mom and dad were born and raised in Egypt and I speak the language that made me the expert on the Middle East. So, okay, whatever. All right, I'll be the expert on the Middle East today. And one of the common questions that we would get, we would get it for weeks on end, is James, are you worried about ISIS? Does ISIS concern you? Are you worried about ISIS? And me and Don would say the exact same thing. We're not worried about ISIS. ISIS technically are supposed to be the majority of the Islamic movement. They represent, or the Islamic religion, they represent the majority. They're the Sunni. And yes, I'm worried about them in the sense that Islam is a violent, brutally violent religion that has no regard for humanity. Now, if you don't agree with me, well then study the Quran. I don't want to encourage you to study a false, satanically inspired book. But if you do, you'll find out that it is nothing but lies, deception, and death. As a matter of fact, in the Quran, it actually says that Allah is the chief of liars. And anybody that tells you the Allah the same Allah of our Bible, they're lying to you. Whether or not they have an accent. I'm serious. I'm serious. I was one of the first guys as a computer forensics expert, probably amongst the first six or seven hundred guys to listen to the black box recordings of the 9-11 terrorists when they flew those planes into the buildings. And when they flew the planes into the buildings, they were not going, ah! They were chanting, Ya Allah, Muhammad Rasulullah. They were chanting the lie of their fake God, is what they were chanting. Their satanically inspired God. I talked to a guy the other day recently who hears me talking to my dad in Arabic in the elevator. And as he hears me talking to my dad in, in, in Arabic in the elevator, he says, because we're going up to the doctor's office, he looks at me and he says, Allahu Akbar, brother. You assume I'm a, I'm a Muslim because I speak Arabic on the phone? Come on, bro. I assume you're Muslim because you're a colored man. Do you speak any Arabic? No. Do you read the Arabic version of the Quran? No. Do you know the number one purveyor of slaves during the time of slavery in our country was the Arab Muslim of black slaves? They're the same number one purveyor today. Do you know that they look at you as a black man and they consider you a subhuman? Christianity is what delivered your people. Wow. But the lies continue to propagate, don't they? People continue to say the lies. So, there's lots of false gods, lots of false religions. Moving forward, 
I'd say, I'm still not worried about ISIS. Yes, they're violent. I'm still not worried about them. Well, then who are you worried about? I'm worried about Iran. Now, this was before we were hearing about Iran in the news. I said, I'm actually worried about the fact that Iran and Russia are going to be close-knit buddies, and they're going to maneuver somewhere in the neighborhood of Syria and possibly Turkey. And people sent us letters calling us nuts. They called us kooks. They said we were crazy. As a matter of fact, I remember getting a letter from state prison with a guy telling me that he was in for life, but if he could get out, he'd kill me because of how wrong I was and the lies that I was telling everybody. And everybody that condemned us said that will never happen. They used to laugh at Chuck when Chuck would used to say things like that in the 1980s. Lo and behold, where are we at right now? Where are we at? You have ISIS becoming a problem. And in the name of ISIS becoming a problem, a treaty gets brokered or an understanding, a memorandum of understanding gets brokered between Russia and even the United States during the Obama administration, by the way, to be hands off with the actions of Syria and to allow Russia to go in and to handle the rebels in Assyria so that they can solve everything and everything will be okay. You hit the fast forward button. Zzz, zzz, zzz. Russia is in bed with Iran. They're setting up their bases in Syria. And guess who just came to the party? Turkey. Anybody ever read Ezekiel 37, 38? God's word is true. Every time God says something, it's going to happen, folks. It's going to happen. You know what God is like? God, let me tell you what God is not like. God is not like the new age girl that you see over at uh, uh, Whole Foods or one of these other fancy grocery stores. You know what I'm talking about? You know, we have a mother's market right by our house, and this has happened to me a few times. And, it, and that place is really good, but you have to finance your life to buy a loaf of bread, you know. But it's good. It's really good food, you know. And so I go in there, you know, a little toddler that's losing his mind. Ah, I want that! I want that! I want that! And the mom says, honey, I'm going to count to three. And by the time I count to three, if you don't calm down, then I'm going to have to deal with you. And so, ah, One, two, Ugh. all right, I don't need to watch that nonsense. She's dealing with them, whatever. So I go on and I hear the kid in the background. I go, you know, get my $13,000 loaf of bread and come back down the aisle. Look over to the left and the mom's counting to like 40, right? I turn around and go to the cash register and now she's counting at like 50 or 60, right? God is a lot like my dad was to me when I was a kid, right? If I said no to my dad before the O in no could come out, the back of his hand was on my mouth. And he didn't care who it was in front of. Can you imagine an old school Middle Eastern man? One of my favorite stories involved my older brother, John. One day, me and, my, me and my dad are coming home, and as we come home, we see the police lights in front of our house. And it turns out that my brother, John, and a few of the friends were involved in a little uh, nonsense where they decided to light these piccolo peats in the porch of the town drunk's house. And so he lived a few streets, a few uh, uh, houses down. So they light the piccolo. Drunky, you're a drunk. Drunky came out really mad. He took a 40 ounce, bunch of 40 ounce bottles filled with alcohol and threw it through the windows of a few houses. Well, now we got a crime going on, right? 
Now, mind you, this is in the 80s, and so in the 80s, cops didn't, you know, take everybody to jail for every little thing for saying, you know, Jesus loves you, you know what I'm talking about? But uh, they were still there, and I still remember the police officer that was handling the whole situation, <coughs> and my brother, of course, was um, <coughs> sort of uh, uh, standing there by the policeman, and my dad is flaming mad. And he's, what happened to over here? What is going on, police? You know, he gets so mad, he just called the guy police. You know what I mean? And the officer begins to tell the story, and my brother starts yelling at the top of his lungs, please, officer, please, take me to jail. Please, take me to jail, officer. You don't understand. My dad's going to spank me. You don't understand. He's going he's gonna to beat me. And my dad says, like, right into the officer, he goes, Shut up to my to my to my uh, brother, and he looks at the officer. He goes, "Mr. Officer, let me tell you something. I'm not going to beat my son. I'm going to kill him." And the officer laughs as loud as he can, releases my brother into custody. My brother, please, ah, oh, please, take me away, take me away. This is the same man, by the way, that I threatened to call Child Protective Services on one day. And so what he did was had my mom videotape me while he gave me the spanking of a lifetime, pulled the tape out and says, when you call them, give them this tape too. Right? God is that one. God is the one that says, I'm doing it, and he's not holding back when he says he's doing it. He doesn't play games. He's not saying, okay, I'll count to five, even though I said I was going to count to three. When God says he's going to do something, folks, he's going to do it. Larry did a very good job of demonstrating to you the fact that Jesus Christ is coming back soon. But let me read some critical words that followed one of the passages that he shared in 1 Thessalonians. Let me read to you what it says of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, actually chapter 5. In chapter 4, he just finishes telling the brothers, hey, encourage one another with these words, that the trumpet's going to blow, that Christ is going to come for the church. But then look what he says. This is powerful. Look what he says in chapter 5, verse 1. He says, but of the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write to you. Why do you have no need that I write to you? You have no need that I write to you because you know the times Times and the seasons are here. It's superfluous for me to tell you it's coming. That would be like me and you walking out in the parking lot and we're seeing a mortar come our way and I go, by the way, guys, that's a mortar that's coming. You know, when it hits here, it's going to explode. No, there's no need for me to you for me to tell you that. You know it's coming. You're aware. Let me tell you what this implies. This implies that the people that are reading this letter are avid students of the Word of God. Because if they know the Word of God, then that means they know that Christ is coming and there is nothing that is keeping them from their fundamental understanding of that truth. If you have not learned of your need to study the Word of God vigorously and aggressively with everything in you, pick up on that need right now just from this verse. By the way, there's no excuse for us these days to not study the Word of God. You can listen to podcasts till you're blue in the face. You can listen to the Bible being read to you. You know, I have James Earl Jones reading me. I got a, I bought a thing of James Earl Jones reading the Bible to me. And I like King James. I'm like an Elizabethan English type of a person. So it's like I have Darth Vader reading the Bible to me. It's awesome. Genesis 1 1. Oh, I love it. Especially in the parts where he starts talking about my father in heaven. You know, when Jesus talks about his father in heaven. My father. <laughs> I love it. 
There's no excuse. We can hear the word of God clearly and regularly. You might not be somebody who enjoys reading. There's always an alternative for somebody who doesn't enjoy reading. There's nothing in the Bible that says you must actually with your own eyes read it. Hearing it is the same thing. As a matter of fact, there's lots of directives that are given in the Hebrew language that actually refer to hearing of the word of God. Why? Because there was a general assumption during biblical times that the average person who was being instructed to meditate on the word of God did not have have basic literacy established. Did you know that? Most of the time they were bound to read and the assumption was to listen because they couldn't read. So there's no excuse. Well, I don't really like reading. Okay, great. Well, I fall asleep every time I unload my Bible studies and put them in your headphones really, really loud. I scream all the time, I promise you. On K-Wave, I'm right before Tony Evans, and Tony Evans is the guy that everybody takes a break with, and he's like, oh, we fit in really nice. We're a good lineup. But there's no excuse. We should be hearing the word. We should be reading the word. We should be listening to the word. The word of God is alive in us. Even Jesus made that declaration. When John, through John, when John writes in the Greek, he says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus Christ was later identified as that living word. Dynamic, breathing, functioning, walking. Jesus said, I did not come to destroy the law, to abolish it. I came to what? I came to fulfill it. Did you guys know that nobody can go into heaven unless they fulfill the law of God perfectly? Did you guys know that? That's the whole reason why Jesus is so important to you. Because he lived the law of God perfectly. He was the only person that did live the law of God perfectly. And now you take off your filthy rag, your menstrual cloth. You take that off. That's your righteousness. You put on the righteousness of Jesus Christ and the perfection of Jesus Christ's life. The robe of righteousness is what God the Father sees. Hey, well done, good and faithful servant. Not because of the life you lived, but because of the life Jesus lived for you. Knowing the word of God is important. He says what? He says, but of the times and the seasons, brother, you have no need that I write to you, for you yourselves, that's really what it should be translated as, but for yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them and travail as woman with child, and they shall not escape. But notice what he says in verse 4. He says, but you, brethren, are not in the darkness that the day should overtake you as a thief. You are all the children of the light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. Therefore, what? Here's the exhortation. Let us not sleep as do others, but let us what? Here's the exhortation. Watch and be sober. They are both present, active, imperative in the Greek. In other words, you are to continue to watch and you're to continue to be sober. Let's talk about sobriety for just a second. Watching is not a hard thing for us to get, right? Watching is, you see, you, you're watching, you can see it. But do you know there's a lot of people who watch things but don't know what they're watching because they're drunk out of their brains. I can give you the illustration of alcohol, right? That's an easy one to give to you. I have need to give you the alcohol illustration because give you the alcohol illustration. It's uh, something we see every day in society. 
But when I talk about somebody maintaining their sobriety, the number one thought that goes through people's mind is alcohol or any other type of drug. Is that not the, the thought that goes in someone's mind? Hey, be sober. That means stay away from alcohol and stay away from drugs. But let me tell you, the number one killer of sobriety in any human's life. You ready for it? The number one killer of sobriety in any human's life is what? Sin. If we will walk in purity as the church of Jesus Christ, do you understand the fact that that will help us? It will maintain our, our sobriety. So then as we're watching, we are looking at things differently. See, the rest of the world is watching around us and go, <laughs> as a matter of fact, there are people writing books that say, looking at the world, the world is the best place to live today. It's never been a better time to live in this world. Well, yeah, I would agree with the statement that there's never been a better time to live in this world. But to say that the world is getting better, you're out of your dang mind. You're watching the same data, but you're not sober enough to determine what it is you're watching. Right? First time I ever got in a police car, one of the first times I ever got in a police car with one of, probably in my opinion, the, the greatest gang detectives I've ever been in a police car with. He was a sharp policeman. We're going down the South Alley of Gage, which was known for gang presence. And I'm really, really new at this. I'm probably a year into this, and I really don't know a lot about what I see out there. I'm really, I'm really dumb about it, really young. And I'm going down the street. We're going down this alley, and we're just a slow patrol because it's known for gang activity. And my partner slams on the brakes, turns around to me, he says, call units, get units here as fast as you can, get it back. I'm like, what the heck are you looking at? And, he, and he's behind a garage area, and he walks around to the garage area to the front with his gun up saying, if you make one move, I'm going to take your life and not even blink. Whoa. I don't even see what he's seeing. Turns out, my heart went crazy after the whole thing was down. He gets the guy down, there's guns on him, there's dope, all kinds of stuff. He arrests him, good arrest, the whole thing. I looked at him later, I go, how in the world were you able to tell that there was a guy behind that wall? How in the world were you able to tell that he was up in the upper compartment of that wall? He says, really simple. He says, I go down this alley 100 times a night. He says, five years ago, there was a shooting that took place in this neighborhood. Well, they take place all the time, but the shooting I'm talking about that's pertinent to what I'm talking about put a bullet hole through the back of that garage wall. That wall has never been repaired. So every time I go down the alley, I see light through that wall. And the cardboard divider that separates the top of the wall is not strong enough to hold any cargo or anything. The guy had to be standing on the rafter that comes out of the area. It tells me that somebody was hiding in there because he saw me down the street. Wow. Now me and him were looking at the same exact thing. We were observing the same thing. But he was sober enough to recognize that something was different. Did you know that that's the way it is with the world today? Me and you and the rest of the world, we're looking at the same data. We're looking at the same people. We're looking at the same players. We're looking at the same events. And yet, they translate what they're looking at so completely different. 
You ever wonder why you see everything that's going on right now in the big, bad, ugly world with, the, with Washington and everything, and you just wonder, how can they say this about what? Can, can't anybody see? That's the number one thing we always say, right? Sure, they can see. Folks, they're watching, but they're not sober. They're watching, but they're not sober. May we remain sober. And the only way we remain sober is by staying in the word and walking in purity. One last thought, and I'll close with this. We talk about a thief in the night. We had a problem at Calvary Chapel Downey for many years, probably about a year of people stealing money, breaking into the sanctuary and stealing money out of the offering uh, containers that we had there. And this was when I was on staff at Downey. Of course, as you guys know, I left Downey about 15 years ago, oh, 14 years ago to start the work in Signal Hill. You guys are about to hear, by the way, from Pastor Jeff. He's amazing. He is my pastor. That guy's my Paul. And um, I'm proud to call him my pastor. You guys are going to be so blessed. What I know, that man gave a lot of himself to me. He's amazing, man. You're going to love it. But we are literally, this is no joke, getting ripped off almost every week now. So we sit down in the pastor's meeting and we have this idea. Well, guys, why don't we do this? And everybody thought I was stupid. Me and another guy thought of this and they thought we were both dumb for doing this. Why don't we take a bunch of the wireless mics, similar to the one that I'm wearing right now, and Downey had several of them. And why don't we stick them in the planners of the foyer and turn on the mics so that we could hear them in the speakers of the sanctuary? And then at night, five or six of us on Sunday night, because it normally be Sunday night after the offering, we'll just camp out and wait for the crooks to come in. And we'll catch them. No, it's a dumb idea, but if you want to do it, why not? Sunday night comes along. We've set up the mics. We've got five or six guys ready to go. One guy's an off-duty policeman. He's got his guns with him, and he's all excited, ready to go. Young guy, you can tell he's been the cops for like five days. You know what I mean? One of those guys, you know? And then, you, you, you know, everyone's all excited. They're ready. They're like, let's catch this guy. So we all pray. We got our cups of coffee. And we no more than just the time where we pour the cups of coffee. Barely pour the cups of coffee. Barely. Guess what happens? We hear the... The guy's looking for an open door. Finally, you hear the... He's breaking the seal on one of them with the screwdriver. And then you hear the... He breaks one of the offering things. Click, 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 click. It's time, guys. This is our guy. So we come out, and the chase is on. Of course, I'm not running. I'm just watching, because that's what I do. <laughs> and the chase is on, and they are running and running, and the police is being called, and the big containment is set up. Even the guests are up in the air, and they're looking for the guy, and wait, we lost him. <laughs> just so you know, we never caught him. It was bad. It was, we should have caught him, but we didn't. But he never came back. But the point is this. At the beginning, when we weren't expecting it, we were ripped off. And when we were ripped off, the loss was horrendous. It was bad. But when we were expecting it, when we were waiting for it, when we were anticipating it, it was like, <laughs> it's about time, sucker. Well, 
Jesus is certainly no thief. But if you stand here not anticipating his return, not being sober while you're watching, you're going to be overtaken like we were. But if you will put yourself on guard expecting his soon return, just know that these perilous times in which we live serve as an encouraging and purifying variable to remind you one very simple, important fact. Jesus Christ is coming back soon. Amen? Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. And we thank you for the fact that you are indeed coming back soon. You are so good and you are so faithful. We love you, God. We thank you. Will you fill us with your spirit and go before us now, Lord? It's our desire to walk with you and to serve you all the days of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to say something really quickly before the um, uh, before I think it's Chris comes up to talk to you. Um, I and I feel the need to tell you this. I normally am one of these guys that sticks around for the whole conference. Um, the reason why I'm not doing it this time is because, as you know, I was kind of a, I was a second choice. <laughs> um, I. Uh, I was asked to, to, to stand in the stead of a, of a very tragic situation and super honored that I could. But in the meantime, um, I have a very, very big men's breakfast going on at my church. And Odin Fong agreed to step in my stead. And so I need to be back there before that ends so that I can be there with my guys. So when you see me, uh, the reason why I came in late while Larry was coming, and I'm glad I got most of Larry's study, but the reason why I was late when that happened was because I was cooking for the guys, and now I'm going to go back and, uh, and finish up. So I'm sorry for not sticking around. Normally I would. I would love to spend time fellowshipping with you guys and, and loving on you, but man, keep your eyes on the Lord. We have a great rest of the conference going on. You're going to be blessed by Pastor Jeff. I know art is going to be a blessing. It's going to be a great time, and you guys are going to be uh, really, really ministered to. So God bless you guys. We love you so much. Keep your eyes open. Open, man. Jesus is coming.